0: One of the first rules that you learn when you're training to do professional coaching, um, and I think counselors must have to learn this one too, is AWGO, A-W-G-O, articulate what's going on. You might say something like, oh man, I noticed when you said that, your shoulder's slumped, What's what's there? Or, you leaned forward in your chair just then. What were you, what was it that piqued your interest? Sometimes it lands. Sometimes you just look like an idiot stating the, the obvious, but um, it is a habit that I have learned, and so I, I need to right now articulate what is going on in my own heart. I have struggled this week with this sermon in a way that I have not struggled with another passage in a long, long time. I'm anxious. I'm anxious about teaching it. Because my fear is, and it is fear, that I'm going to come off as reactionary and strident at best and manipulative at worst. You may have observed uh, over time that my sermons are not academic exercises. I'm not capable of it. It's not how my brain works. I only can preach from my experience of interacting with a passage over time and, and speaking to you what I believe God is speaking to me in it. And that comes from a fundamental belief about the Bible. I believe that the Word of God, the Bible, is just that. It is the Word of God, which means that it is divinely communicated revelation of God's character and how we can know him. It's also, you may have noticed, a very human book written by human authors in human languages, describing human events, dealing with human issues, and directing humans about all things pertaining to God. I believe it to be inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, entirely truthful and completely trustworthy in all the matters to which it speaks. As such, I believe that the Bible is normative and not negotiable. It is not blown about by the erratic winds of any prevailing culture in any time or in any place. Thank God. It is neither simply a set of either-or propositions or of if-then guarantees, and it is absolutely as our collect this morning communicated, it's absolutely not truth disembodied from love. Listen, we can get everything else right, but if we fail on love, we have failed. Holding grace and truth in is just that, tension. It's excruciatingly hard and discerning work. This, all all this that we see around us is not ultimate. I'm not talking about trees and buildings. I'm talking about the cultural forces that seek to influence and shape and manipulate us. I'm talking about political ideology, right or left. Things that are always changing and will always change. Unseen forces that seek to draw us from God. They are not ultimate. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I heard a story, it was actually just this week, of a, of a, of a pastor telling a story about the, the value of repetition and liturgy. And he said, Every time I read the Bible in my church, I say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. And he said, I had a 16-year-old come up to me and ask me why I said that every time I read the Bible. And he said, that's why. Because you know it now. This is one of the reasons why I don't, as a rule, ask how does this apply to my life? But rather, how do I apply myself to this? Because I believe this is ultimate. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is incredibly sobering. Because not only does it do this work of piercing and dividing and discerning within the heart of individuals, individual believers, which is painful enough, it also does it in the wider world. And in the age of the rise and triumph of the modern self in the West, it's doing it more and more. This view of scripture is increasingly seen by many as antiquated, out of step, ignorant, bigoted, oppressive, and outright dangerous. There's an unbelievable amount of churn in our country and the Western world about how we view the Bible or candidly, if it should be viewed at all. In the ACNA catechism, to be a Christian, question 25 is what is Holy Scripture? And this is the answer. Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It's not a secret code unlocked by the symbolism on the back of a $10 bill, nor is it a textbook on adolescent cognitive development or a reference work on paleontology. We shouldn't try to make it do more than it itself does. It's the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice and has been since the church's first days. It's a foundation upon which the church has built and has endured and will endure until Christ returns. I say all this as background to undergird a point that I hope to make later from today's gospel reading. Though I'm not what you might call a nationalist, I am genuinely and unabashedly, I, I genuinely and unabashedly love my country and I'm grateful for it. But among its myriad other shortcomings, the United States of America is among the most violent countries in the developed world against its children. Thanks be to God, this number is steadily going down year by year. But in 2019, nearly 700,000 pregnancies terminated in abortion. One in every five American children lives in poverty. Fetal alcohol and drug syndrome are likely responsible for at least 30% of cognitive disabilities. In one survey, 89% of school teachers reported that abuse and neglect of children are a quote-unquote major problem in their education. One in four, 25% of girls under 18 have likely been sexually abused by someone close to them. And the number of boys... That this has happened to as well just keeps growing and growing. You guys, this is just pure and unadulterated evil. And in at least one place, it has happened even within the ACNA. Part of the agenda that our vestry will take on this afternoon is how we ensure the safety of children, how we vet those who serve them how we report and how we pastorally care. So you might pray for us because this is a, a big and important undertaking. But I want to take all those statistics there, I know th- those are like, uh, I was gonna say they're a downer, but that is putting them much, that's just much too mild. But I want to put those things over and against today's gospel reading from Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. You can turn to it in your Bible or on your device. That would be great. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word that should have or does, that has or should have ultimate authority for all Christians. It shows us how we can spend our short lives in the most significant way and helps get at the root of why so many children suffer from neglect and abuse. In this passage, Jesus says two significant things that will transform the way we relate to children. And between these two things, one in verse 35 and the other in verse 37, Jesus places a child. The first thing Jesus says in response to the disciples arguing about who of them was the greatest in verses 33 and 34 is this. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) I love the simplicity of that actually. And to this, Jesus responds with his first word in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What Jesus does here is pretty profound. He recognizes his disciples' quest for greatness as a good thing. That has become bent and distorted by sin and instead of destroying the whole distorted thing he describes a pathway on which the distor- distorted and bent pursuit of greatness can be transformed into something beautiful nowhere does jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significant uh, significance i think it's because he created us to be great and to be significant come to the end of our lives and feel that they were spent well and invested well. But what's happened to this God-given longing for greatness is that it has been corrupted by sin in two ways. First, it's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to look great. And it's been corrupted into a longing not to be great be greater than someone else in other words the joy of true greatness has been perverted by sin into the carnal pleasure we get when others praise us and when we think we're actually just better than others jesus sees this in his disciples and instead of destroying the whole distorted thing he describes a pathway on which it can be transformed He says true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second and third and fourth, but true greatness is the willingness to be last. And true greatness is not positioning yourself so that others praise you, but true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everyone, to be a blessing to as many as you possibly can. So Jesus doesn't condemn the quest for greatness. He radically transforms it. Go ahead and pursue it, I think he says here. But the path isn't what you'd think. It's down and not up. The measure of true greatness is the degree to which the impulse to self exaltation has been crucified. How much heartfelt desire to serve others has there been? How much readiness and willingness to decrease while others increase? Beware of how you measure greatness, loved ones. It isn't what you'd think. That's the first thing Jesus says here. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And before he says the second, he takes a child, just a, a, a kid that must have been standing around, and he puts them in the middle of the circle of the apostles. It says in verse 36, and he, Then he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. Why did he do this? What in the world does it have to do with teaching on greatness? I think the point is so clear that Jesus doesn't even say it. The point is that children are among and maybe top the list of the all. In verse 35, you must be servant of all. For example, here's a child. I'm taking this child in my arms to show you that if you would be great, if you would be first, you must be the servant of children. You must take time for and love and teach children. You must not look down on or despise or hinder children. In fact, if you want to be truly great, you'll serve them. Why does Jesus illustrate his point about serving with a child? The discussion wasn't remotely about children. So why does he bring them in? I think the answer is that there is absolutely no political payback in serving children. They can't vote, and they don't generally give speeches about how great your helpfulness is. In fact, they pretty much take for granted that you're going to take care of them. They don't make a big deal out of the fact that you pour your life out for them. Especially my kids. No, I'm... T- <laughs> and so children prove more clearly than any other kind of people whether you're truly great or not. Whether you live to serve or live to be praised. Luke fourteen thirteen and 14 talks about how the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind also prove this. Jesus said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So now comes the second thing Jesus said in verse 37. And it is just utterly unexpected and candidly blows me away. Jesus turns the whole discussion away from the value of the child to the value of God. This is what is so different about Jesus and about the Bible, even from many of our Christian child advocates writing today. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In this light, two things are utterly critical in serving or receiving children. One is, is it done in Jesus' name? Whoever receives a child in my name, receiving children in any way but the name of Jesus, although it might be good, does not fulfill the will of Jesus. And the second crucial thing in serving children is that we do it with a desire to experience more of Jesus and more of the one who sent him, God the Father. He who receives a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Why does he say this? Why does he bring everything to a focus on God and the value of receiving more of God? Do you ever just want to say to Jesus, lighten up. I mean, does everything have to be theological? And the answer would be yes, it does. Because for Jesus, everything has to do with God or it's fundamentally distorted. And if someone asks, what about the children? Aren't aren't you supposed to serve the children because of the children? Surely the answer of Jesus here is this. We serve children best when we receive them and serve them and teach them and form them not in the name of the child or in the name of mankind or in the name of mercy or in the name of America's future but in the name of Jesus the son of the living God. And you serve children best when you receive them not merely because your joy is first in them but first and finally in God. Why is this the best way to receive a child? Because the most important blessing you can give a child is the all-satisfy because the most important blessing that you can give to a child is the all-satisfying centrality of God in life. And believe me, this is caught more than it is taught. And that's why we must receive them in this way and serve them in this way. One of the ways that the church has been doing this since at least the second century when according to... to, to, There was a spider on the microphone. And I also was having trouble saying Tertullian. When according to that guy, the second century, it was already common practice in the church to baptize children. Baptism is literally receiving a child in Jesus' name. Lord willing, on Sunday, October 3rd, Catherine and Jesse Harris will present their little daughter, Elizabeth, to receive the sacrament of baptism. This is the day that we, all of us, together, so as you're ready to do this, don't come that day, I guess, With Catherine and Jesse and Elizabeth's godparents, publicly commit ourselves to being both the evangelists and the disciples in Elizabeth's life. We will vow before God, as we do with every child we baptize, to serve her and model life in Christ to her and to teach her. Part of the service, just after we stand together and say the Apostles' Creed, which is the baptismal confession, I will ask you, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support Elizabeth in her life in Christ? And you're supposed to say, we will! Exclamation point. And what we're doing there is bringing her into a community. We're receiving her into a community that stands apart from the world, even as it's in it. A community that takes seriously and shapes its life on something that, unlike everything around it, doesn't shift or change. The inspired, truthful, trustworthy, and eternal Word of God. We really don't have anything else of substance to offer her. The last words we'll together say to her in that rite of baptism, I think, says it well. We receive. There's that word. We receive you into the fellowship of the church confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in the royal priesthood of all his people. We receive her into a community that takes the word of God as the word of God. If I were a young Christian parent, that is exactly the kind of community I would want for my children. And as a grandparent, that is exactly the kind of community that I hope they're part of. So back to the passage. Let's put the two things that Jesus said in Mark 9 together. In verse 35, he said, if you would be first, you must be last, last of all, and the servant of all, and apparently, especially children. And in verse 37, he said, if you receive a child in my name, you will receive God. So there is something in serving children that is key to knowing God. In other words, When I call you to be the servant of all, including children, I'm not necessarily calling you to some heroic self-sacrifice. I'm calling you to stop trying to look great and instead to be great. Stop trying to receive praise in the service of men and start receiving God in the service of children. So do you want to be great? Have I got a deal for you? (laughs) Actually, there are as many ways to serve children, as there are imaginations. But I do have a deal for you, and this is potentially or maybe explicitly manipulative on my part. But based on a week that began with an innocent enough question and ended in grief, I am going to risk it. One of our children, last week, a sixth grader with one of the brightest and most Fertile minds that I know walked up to me after church and said, um, I have a question. And when this guy says, um, I have a question, be afraid. Be very afraid because those waters run unbelievably deep. And he usually asks me questions that I say, you know what, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. (laughs) He just asked me a simple question. Hey. Hey. Do you mind if I ask you a question? When are we gonna have Sunday school for kids my age? Roll forward a few days to Friday night. Lauren and I were sitting with a family whose lives we've been part of for over a decade, who have been a vital part of this church have served us all, weeping, oh, just openly weeping with them because they're leaving Redeemer to go to a church that's got something that's going to engage their children. This this is grievous to me. but it's a it's a it's a it's a pattern unfortunately for us at Redeemer we we have young families that come and and are excited and are a part and then when they get to a certain age they kind of drift off listen we we have a shared vision and if and if we're going to pursue that vision, we must grow more. Not, not so that we can grow more. Listen, I spent the meatiest part of my pastoral career in a mega church. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. That holds no appeal to me. None. But we must grow more so that we can give more. so so all of you got an email this week with Carissa from Carissa outlining a plan for children's ministry for children's formation at Redeemer and I, I candidly did not know she was going to send that I was impre- I was impressed by it but when I read it I thought I didn't know this was coming out so soon and um, I'm going to have her resend it this week and I would like for you to seriously just Please, read it. Think about it. Pray about how God might use you to receive children in the name of Jesus. We don't have to do it all at once, but I think we need to get there. So that's my heavy-handed, manipulative, strident, reactionary sermon and I'm sorry but I'm also not very sorry because as Lauren said to me this morning as I was pacing in our bedroom before I took my shower she said did the Holy Spirit lead you to say these things I said yeah and she said "Then you can't not say them so <laughs> there you go but I will say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen.